Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to a hybrid episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Hannah Strong. And I am Hafa Salas Ross. If you can hear the sound of crashing waves and disappointing gelato in the background, it's because once again we are recording direct from the Venice Film Festival. So please forgive our unbearable smugness as we record from the beach bed that I have been calling my office for the past week. We'll also be reviewing new releases El Conde and Past Lives, and we have an interview with you from the incredible director Celine Song. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So, I mean, time is at the essence when it comes to these film festivals. So, uh, shall we just get straight into it? Um, our first film, El Conde, is out this week. First up, we have El Conde. Augusto Pinochet never died. Rather, he is a vampire who, after 250 years, decides to die due to his complicated family situation and the dishonor of his figure. So, Hafa, this is coming out for people, but this was also like one of the earliest films of the festival. Was this one of your more, more anticipated things, the new Lorraine? Yeah, I have been a massive Lorraine fan for quite a few years. I am South American, so I am slightly biased, but I remember seeing his early work pop up in festivals and um, have been quite enamored with his work since then. And he's returning to a theme that has been very familiar in his career. So he he was last in Venice two years ago with Spencer, and now he's back to Pinochet and exploring the ripples of the Chilean dictatorship in his work. He has famously done a trilogy of Tony Manero, Postmortem and No, which were all explorations of that period in time. So I was very curious to see what he was going to do with this one. I mean, you and I were Spencer defenders, which is not something that's popular over with Little White Lies, but uh, did this kind of uh, live up to those expectations? Oh, a thousand percent. I feel like the idea of using this framework of a black and white satire vampiristic satire to talk about the impact of the legacy of Pinochet and how it is still alive despite the body of the dictator being buried under seven layers of, of earth is really interesting and I think it's a film that is not only beautiful to look at but is very much on the nose in a way that I think works really well and I think people will be like oh the entire thing about the film is that fascism is bad and it is bad you guys and, and fascism has been rising in South America quite terrifyingly over the past few years um, it's just been a few weeks since there was a assassination of a presidential candidate who has uh, vouched to, to stop corruption and the right wing parties and we elected Lula in Brazil less than a year ago thank so, god thank god and, and I think that people will be like oh is there a need to say that fascism is bad and I'm telling you it, there is and, and there's a need in the west as well like, a thousand percent yeah we're in Italy right now and we know that like the rise of the far right here has been a massive concern for people as well so it seems like people do need reminder. yeah oh god Yes, sadly. I mean, yeah, it's a weird cyclical thing because obviously this festival was founded by Mussolini. Um, like, now we come back to uh, not a million miles away rule. Um, but yeah, Hannah, for you, did this all work? I mean, it's kind of like fantastical reimagination of like a very difficult historical figure. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, you were kind of alluded to Little White Lights stance on Spencer. I, I, do, I really do not like Spencer as a film. I'm, I'm very into... Um, the other Lorraine films I have seen so I, I really like Emma I really like Jackie but yeah I'm for whatever reason Spencer didn't really land for me maybe it was Stephen Knight's fault I don't know who's to say but uh, El Conde I was very excited about I love a vampire movie and I like the very on the nose of this whole like 
politicians as monsters kind of it is a metaphor but it's so obvious as to kind of be like well is it really (laughs) it's so on the nose but I mean I do think it really works I think I was surprised at just how funny the film was it has this like narrative device of this voiceover which is kind of like this omnipresent narrator who knows everything and speaking this very British staid voice and you're kind of thinking like who is this why does that voice sound so familiar? And then there's like a reveal quite late in the film, which I found very funny, one of the film's best bits. And also I think kind of um, nod to the great dictator in like, mm-hmm. fra- you know, this black and white, obviously Chaplin was shooting out black and white, out of necessity, but like, yeah, this idea of framing a monster, a human monster in a kind of comical way, I think is something that can seem dismissive I found mm-hmm. Jojo Rabbit didn't really work for me because it, it kind of felt like it was no on um, that we are agreed <laughs> yeah <laughs> it was kind of I don't know just a very weird way of framing um, arguably the most evil man that ever lived but, hard competition um, yeah we got some hard competition in Pinochet yeah um, and very other dictators are available um, but I actually think that the kind of horror of it all is never like undersold in the story you know you, you know we see him like um, Pinochet and his family his other vampires eating like these like bloody hearts which is quite like even in black and white it's quite graphic and um, I my only kind of issue is like the gender politics of the film I think are a bit weird like mm-hmm. it's kind of it does feel lightly misogynistic to me because it kind of implies that like well Pinochet was bad but his wife is <laughs> even worse which apparently is like a there is some like scholarship around this that suggests that he was kind of at the whim of his wife did the patriarchy um, write the scholarship yeah yeah exactly <laughs> don't yeah. you think it is wonderful to know that women can be terrible too it's I think it's like actually quite yeah. Yeah. not since yeah. Macbeth have I been yeah. so empowered yeah <laughs> but I did have a good time with it and I do think it's a very kind of interesting way of shedding light on a part of uh, world history that people outside of like Latin America might not be that familiar with. Certainly, I'm not. Like, mm-hmm. You know, by the time I was born, Pinochet had been out of power for a, a little bit. So it's kind of something that you know, forgive my ignorance, listeners, I didn't know much about. So it was kind of, yeah, re- refreshing in that sense as well. That like, I'm glad Netflix are partnering with Lorraine on this and hopefully it will get seen by a kind of wide audience so it played really early in the competition and we yeah. were saying a lot of people might have missed it here so hopefully hopefully they'll take the time yeah I hope so I'm, I'm, I missed it so I'm just taking your word for it but it is very interesting to see that kind of like someone coming in into kind of like the story is more of a newbie and somebody that's more kind of like that's part of like mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, something that they're very familiar with both had like a positive reaction to it <laughs> yeah I would just say I am slightly biased but I think Lorraine is one of our most interesting and most um, just multidisciplinary and then creative directors that we have working right now I think he can do no wrong when he's playing with different genres and I'm just a big fan of the work that he does when he goes to Hollywood I'm a fan of the work that he does when he goes back home and I'm just I I am with you I hope that people see this I think it is slightly odd that Netflix has come here with this film on the first day of the festival and is just premiering very very quickly after mm. uh, there's not an entire trajectory of festivals that this film is going to do mm. so I am believing in the good taste of people to go and click on this little odd black and white film about a vampire dictator I, I do hope they do see it because I think it's great oh, um, I will be because I, I arrived a little bit late so I got to miss so this is going to be a Netflix watch for me I mean as a result I can't do scores because I haven't seen it but uh, Hannah do you want to take the lead on those in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect yeah I'm going to say three in anticipation obviously because I wasn't really a big fan of Spencer and I think sometimes yeah these films can kind of go either way when it's like a direct passion project but um, I did trust Lorraine you know he's very like he knows a lot about the man as well he's made like three films about Pinochet before in some manner about Pinochet did this little trilogy back in the day so I did think you know he was more than capable of handling it but definitely a foreign enjoyment in retrospect I'm going to give it a three just because I've seen so many great films this week and Mm. I think like maybe it's 
you know, a little hazy in my memory, but I would happily rewatch it for sure. I don't think three is a bad score at all. Mm. <laughs> well, yeah, it depends on um, how you kind of view the three starification of film criticism via Rotten Tomatoes, but a subject <laughs> for another time. Um, Half about you in anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? To me, it was a big five in anticipation because he is, as I have said, I think five times by now, one of my favorite filmmakers. I love his films. I was very thrilled to be able to watch Spencer here two years ago, and I was looking forward to repeating the opportunity and the experience. So it was a big five. Enjoyment, that's a four. I think it is a film of a cinephile. It is full of very direct references to great works of art. It is The Passion of Joan of Arc. You have a little bit of Black Narcissus in there. You have, as Hannah said, some Chaplin references and some references to his earlier work as well. So I think it's a very well-crafted film. And overall it's a four uh, it's a very strong film for me I think it is greatly realized I think it is funny it is writers it is important and I do hope that not having a massive theatrical release won't affect it because I think it's a great film it's a four Oh, well, quite the recommendation. That is what I will be doing once I arrive home and collapse on the sofa and sleep for two days, as the protagonist of Priscilla does, um, because I'm so exhausted. But next up, it's Past Lives. Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member. You'll receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady HQ page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. Nora and Heysan, two deeply connected childhood friends, are wrestled apart after Nora's family emigrates from South Korea. Decades later, they are reunited for one fateful week as they confront destiny, love, and the choices they made in life. Before we get on to the review, here is David Jenkins with the director, Celine Song. Well, Celine, thank you so much for uh, giving us time to chat to you about past lives. I guess the first question I'd like to, to, to ask you about the film is like, I'd love you to talk a bit about how you kind of came to make this story and this material into a film. Because I know that you come from a background of, of being a playwright. And was Past Lives the first time that you'd ever felt that impulse to kind of move to the sort of medium of film? Or had that inkling been with you before? Well, I think that I, it really does have to come from what the story is and what's sort of the best way to tell the story. And I knew that this particular story needed to be told cinematically because of the nature of the time and space in it. So I think that, you know, what's to me the primary difference between working in theater and working in film is that while theater is dealing in um, time and space that is figurative and film is dealing in space and time that is literal. So I felt like uh, this particular story needed to be told literally when it comes to time and space because it is a movie about cities. It's a movie about different places that we live. And actually the way that these two main characters, Nora and Hesong, the way that they live in two different cities actually is a very big part of why they cannot be together or why it's so difficult for them to connect. And the continent-spanning part of it can only be really felt if these two locations feel very different and they feel like they're on a you know different part of the world, which they are. So I think that because of that, uh, the cities themselves are, are characters in the movie and they're actually a very big part of character too. And I think that made me believe that these cities should be depicted uh, literally, uh, which is uh, right for a cinematic form. And then, of course, when it comes to time, this movie is about aging. In theater, uh, what's amazing about theater is that you can have a 40-year-old woman play a 15-year-old boy if you wanted to. And the whole audience will come along, and that's what's amazing about it, right? But I knew that what would be such a central part of this particular story is that because it spans decades, and because that actually is matters, and that's a very big part of the storytelling, that I really felt that you needed to see these characters as children, played by children, and then, of course, for it to be juxtaposed and contradict, but also coexist with these very children grown up and uh, depicted by full grown ups. Mm -hmm. And I think that really was what drove me to believe that this should be a movie and not a stage play. You talked a bit about before about the, the depiction of the cities in the film and the cities being these characters in the film. And could you talk a bit about 
how you went about creating these visions of, of, of I guess, New York. And we, we see, I guess we see a little bit of Seoul as well. They feel quite positive, benign depictions and that there is a, there's a real sense that, that Nora, as much as she's in love with her, her partner, she's also in love with America and New York. And you can kind of see why. Of course. Well, I think that, you know, the the way that I wanted to depict New York is honestly, mainly authentically. So the way that I, because as I myself live in New York, and therefore I know what it is like to live in the city. And the way that the city is, you know, everything is in the eyes of the beholder. And New York City in the eyes of a New Yorker is a different thing altogether. And of course, depending on who is uh, experiencing the city, the city is going to have to feel different in the movie itself. So, for example, there is a moment where um, their main characters, uh, Nora and Hesong, go take a ferry to go see the Statue of Liberty. And that moment, you know, most New Yorkers are not that interested in seeing mm. the Statue of Liberty. But... Hesong is a tourist and Nora is an immigrant. So for both of them, actually Statue of Liberty is a very powerful symbol and a kind of a romantic place for them. So it just made sense for the two of them in their character to go see uh, Statue of Liberty, for example. So what's so funny is like, it's kind of like, a, I don't know, you know, the, the London Bridge. I don't know if you guys yeah. really <laughs> yeah. experience that. And you, I don't think you really think of that as like, wow. <laughs> Or like London Eye, I don't think you're like, wow, like, you know, I think about it every day. I go there every day. I don't think that's how it is. But I think that's similarly to New Yorkers. Plenty of New Yorkers just never even been there. Mm. Right. And I think that that's what's so special about uh, these two going there. So but of course, on the other hand, like uh, the way that I wanted the New York apartment to feel, it was really important for me to make sure that it's an authentic representation of a New York apartment. And it was so funny while looking for that apartment, I would just walk into a hole. There's a horrible, horrible little apartment. Mm -hmm. And I would be like, um, this is kind of a great place for the scene. And then, of course, we will learn that we can't fit a camera. You know, like, <laughs> We can't actually all be in there. Like, And then, of course, so I think some of it is about not just depicting the most beautiful things mm. you know like the it's not about uh our lives in a city is not uh the places that is the most beautiful sometimes it is just like a street corner and i think that really was at the heart of how i wanted new york city to be seen like that street corner where nora and hesong say goodbye to each other mm. uh, the street where nora and arthur live i think that street for example is a uh, this corner that's meant to be so ordinary and so mundane and you might just walk by without thinking twice about it but of course it is going to be made so special just by the fact that we experience this moment there right so i think that that's just true about our relationship to cities you know like sometimes our experience of a city is not the things that end up in the postcard sometimes it's just a corner that you once lived for a couple of years mm. right do you yeah. think that like from from your the way you've sort of brought this story to life and the specificities and the emotions that you kind of bring bring to the screen. There is a kind of dreamlike quality to everything, and that comes from the the way it's shot and the way it's lit and the the, the, the soundtrack. And there is this kind of like heightened, like a it, you know, it's a it's a kind of a ro like not a rose tinted memory, but like a pos you know, it is a positive memory, even if some of the interactions and feelings were quite kind of difficult to to comprehend at the time. Of course. And I think that that is our experience of it. Like that corner can be really special if that's the place that your sweetheart told you that uh, they love you for the first time. Right. And then that corner can never be the same again. And that corner can every time you walk by that corner, you can have a special feeling about it. Mm -hmm. And that corner could be have a garbage can on it. Right. It could be a <laughs> terrible corner. Right. <laughs> but I think that's what's amazing about places that we live. And I think that's really the at the heart of what we wanted to um, find when it comes to visual language, my DP, Shabe Kirchner and I, you know, when we were talking about it, we were always looking for the thing that feels like the way we see it, right? And for example, so when we went to, when we were shooting Statue of Liberty, you know, like there are so many uh, approaches to shooting Statue of Liberty. It's one of the most exposed statues in the world. You know, you will see Statue of Liberty all the time, right, in media. But the way I wanted to approach it is, on a boat, so the Statue of Liberty is going to be a little bit crooked, right? Mm. Because you're on, a, you're shooting it from a boat, and of course, you're. So there are just things like that where, um, and of course, you're looking up at it, right? Because you're on the boat level, 
Um, that's how most people see it, I, I imagine. Yeah, well, that's not how people see it because people <laughs> would usually fl- fly a drone oh, to right. capture it, right? <laughs> so it was this thing where it's like so much of it is about like, well, what it is like when I'm standing here and looking at the street. And I think we're just trying to capture that feeling because I do think that the way we see it changes the way we love it, right? Because, of course, I can love um, New York City that is on a drone, too. It's mm-hmm. magnificent, right? But I think the way that I wanted to wanted New York City to be loved in the movie is as if uh, you're just walking by it. You're just walking on the street because you live in that corner. I guess another question I had was, also, was about, like, Am I am I understand right that the, the basis of the story is actually something that happened to, to you in real life? And I, I, I saw you've talked about the the bar scene where we, where mm-hmm. it sort of starts and dovetails the film mm-hmm. being actually an actual moment. And yes. was, was that was that a moment that kind of triggered the idea for the film, or was or did that come kind of later when you were able to sort of survey mm. the whole thing? No, I think that really was the moment. Like okay. I was sitting there with my child sweetheart and my husband and I was translating between these two guys and um, I think I was just looking around the room and feeling like there's something really special happening between the three of us and that there's some people in the room who are looking at us so me and my child sweetheart and my husband we were being observed by some people in the bar because we were such a weird trio (laughs) of people so I remember really feeling like first of all I was like huh like you have no idea, right? You have no fucking clue who we are to each other. Um, but also the other question, other thing that I thought was like, I was like, hey, what if I actually told you? What if I didn't like half tell you, but I, what if I really properly t- told you? What if I made you live through the things that they've lived through? And of course, we're going to be back at the scene. And then we're going to finally hear a conversation where a kind of a solution to um, the question, who are these three people to each other, is going to be uh, revealed, right? And it's going to be a revelatory conversation. And once I figured out that that would be the structure of like introducing the three of them, introducing the audience to the mystery of who are these people to each other, and then to, you know, near the end of the film, go back to that scene after having lived through uh, these moments in their lives to get there and then to really talk about it, Mm. really talk about what is going on. Then I thought that that's really what led me to believe that I can make this movie. And then from there, I wrote the script. Yeah, those are the first things I figured out. I I would love to know how did the the two men... Were they involved in any way in terms of like, you know, discussions or was it something you wrote and then said, and did did they have access to it before it was made or was your husband, how did he feel about you writing the story? Oh, uh, they didn't have um, access to the writing. Um, But, you know, like I I feel like uh, the, you know, my husband is, you know, supportive and (laughs) wonderful and excited and loves the movie. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, the reason I ask that I did, you know, there is a sense in the film where, yeah. you know, he there, he, the, he kind of is experienced this like he's empathetic, but he, there is a sort of strangeness to the to the situation, and then I guess having to sort of look at it again in, in as a film as something that has been captured as yeah. an experience for him, it, it might be, you know. Well, I think that, but I think the part of it is, is that you know, it sort of starts in that subjective experience of mm-hmm. sitting in that bar. But of course, I think in turning it into a script, it's already been so fully objectified into an object, which is a script that like I wrote every word of, right? Mm. And then from there, there's another layer of objectification of it becoming a movie. So which is like then now you uh, these characters are then played by actors. They're nothing, you know, in some ways, uh, nothing like us. And I think that it really is something where it's like by the process of these two levels of objectifying first into a script that's written and then to a movie that is made with hundreds of people I think that in doing that you know by the end of it you're really just making a movie and eventually you're just watching a movie so I think that really is the relationship that uh, it has to like the the real life things right this I think is really really more about the subjective feeling yeah right more than like facts or you know like (laughs) things like that because that's not the thing that was the project the project was this feeling that i had and how does this turn into a movie 
mm-hmm. and how do I explain what this feeling is like through a movie, right? And I think that really was the process of it. You know. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. like uh, it, it, I guess it was. So, I, it was certainly something I was thinking about because it, it, it kind of exists on all these different planes mm-hmm. as the kind of as the film itself. Because because it, you have these real people that re-experiencing things, and I love I love that that part of it. Well, um, but I love I you know I love the part where it's like this sub, this thing that was started from this subjective experience, objectified, further objectified, turned into mm-hmm. an object, and then now that it's being received by the audience. Exactly. Now the, right. Exactly. That's, that, and then yeah, they're now having a subjective experience for the object. And I think, but I think that's really what's amazing about art anyway, right? I think yeah. all art is about turning something subjective into objective mm-hmm. and then for the audience or the reader or the viewer to then receive it as subjective again. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, so, it's so magical, you're right. It is kind of a special thing. Thank you so much. Thank you. For, for, for that, that was, that was amazing. That was so fun. <laughs> If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, Hannah, um, this was kind of a bit of a festival darling, and it's kind of, I mean, unlike El Conde, it's, you know, <laughs> like it's had a very kind of slow burn and like yeah, build of yeah. buzz. Uh, did it live up to that hype for you? Yeah, so I was I was excited to see this one because it was at Sundance in January, but only in the like physical lineup. It wasn't available for international press, kind of doing the online um, viewing. So I'd heard about it there, and then I'd heard a lot of buzz out of the Berlin Film Festival as well. So I was, yeah, I was quite hyped, quite excited, and then I think I saw it eventually in I want to say April, and I actually mm-hmm. yeah, I found it. Um, a very moving film, um, a, a very impressive debut, I think, from Celine Song. It's um, such a lovely script. I think her kind of background is in, like, screenwriting, like, theatre. Yeah, screenwriting yeah. theatre. So um, that kind of definitely shines through, I think, like, some of the kind of exchanges mm-hmm. in the film are so beautiful. There's this whole speech, which I'm sure Hafa kind of can mm. attest to, um, between um, Greta Lee's character and John McGarry's character, who plays her husband, and you know they're kind of talking about their relationship and about language, and he talks about how he hears her speak in her sleep, and um, he can't understand her, and he says, "You dream in a language I can't understand." Yeah, and you can read. I yeah, you can read half this very beautiful review of the film on the on the Little White Lies website as well. Um, it's up now. Uh, of course, it is very beautiful. Uh, if you want kind of more, like about that 
line kind of mm. the, the poignancy of that when it comes to like a a multicultural relationship a multicultural relationship yeah very impressive in my eyes romantic but not kind of cloying yeah and I'm always here for like a little a little cheeky John Magaro role like mm. just it just makes me really happy seeing him in a film I'm like oh there he is. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's nothing more romantic um, to me than kind of like longing. I suppose it's why like In the Mood for Love is like such an incredibly like moving film, but it's, it's the sort of happiness that could have been had and that you're both aware of that like breaks the heart and makes it sore at the same time. I mean, Hatha, you kind of, you've written about this. It's been a while since you've seen it. Like, mm-hmm. do you, have, have kind of like your feelings on it kind of evolved at all? It's interesting because as Hannah was saying, this was a film that came with a lot of buzz out of Sundance. And I don't always trust that, to be quite honest, especially when it's a film written by a playwright, which can be sometimes overexposed, not with any harmful intentions, of course, but it can just be an exercise in adapting a theatre play or the theatrical language to the screen, which I don't always relate to because I think the cinema I'm most attracted to is the cinema of metaphors Mm -hmm. and it's the cinema of visual language. So I went in with a bit of caution. I saw it in Berlin, during the Berlinale, because it's a film that played in competition in both festivals, which isn't that common. And I was blown away by it. Uh, As Hannah was saying, I do have a bit of a personal connection to it because I have married someone from a completely different country and culture from my own. So this idea of leaving your country and leaving the people that you love and this history that you shared with someone else and coming in and falling in love with someone who can really relate to that really speaks to me and I think it's done very beautifully this the sentence that Hannah just said you dream in a language I can't understand I just keep repeating it in my head because it's such a simple encompassing of something that is so big and I don't think I have ever been able to say it in that way uh, but it's also I think people keep calling it a tale of star-crossed lovers and it is that but I, I also think this is a film about lovers who have found so much joy and companionship in in calmness and in being able to be with each other without that fiery passion of a relationship that is written in the stars because it isn't and and I think relationships oftentimes are about what past lives is about meeting someone unpretentiously and realizing that you share a lot of interests and um, you laugh about the same things and you can just have a good time and it's done very beautifully here and I think John Magato is great and Greta Lee's fantastic mm. she's just so so good so uh, it's a serendipitous work in a way that everything kind of came together to to form a beautiful film and I'm, I'm really excited that this is coming to the UK with such buzz and so many people are talking about it because I, I hope it takes people to the cinema to watch a film that could have gone unnoticed without all the hub hub uh, yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, I love it when kind of you, you see someone make that leap from like character actor to kind of leading lady mm-hmm. as like Greta Lee has done. I think she is generally one of the most um, kind of exciting potential kind of new leading women of her generation. Yeah. She's absolutely stunning. I think in that fight, the final scene of the film, which I won't kind of spoil, but it's like this like one kind of long shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that was just so kind of beautifully pitched because her character is quite like, She's not um, detached, but I think she's quite, like, withholding in her emotions. She knows what she wants, and she's not afraid to get it, but, like, you know, she, she's quite practical, quite pragmatic, I think. And at the end, she just kind of, yeah, I think, like, the weight of everything and all this kind of experience she's been through, like, meeting someone that she'd kind of dismissed, as you know, as part of a, a part of her life that doesn't exist anymore. And um, yeah. seeing that kind of, like non-verbally materialised I found very beautiful and kind of a real like indication of how good she is yeah and and it's just I think her understanding and the entire film's understanding that you fall in love with reminders of home and if they come in the shape of a person then you just confuse those feelings a little bit this idea of familiarity and being attracted by this and also this loving relationship with her husband his American husband and his understanding that her infatuation isn't physical it is metaphorical it is this longing for home it is home personified I think it's just so beautiful this idea of possessiveness is just not here um, and he understands the, the origins of her longing I, I, did, I actually really liked I, I think I probably were complaining that like it wasn't realistic because the husband would be more annoyed but I'm like well I don't know about that I think like 
I actually really liked that it didn't go like a marriage story route and mm, like yeah. you know blazing rows. I think like yeah. actually it was a portrait of a relationship that has to be worked at but that ultimately is like healthy and successful and yeah. we don't get that many of those <laughs> so it's quite nice to see yeah <laughs> and then, I mean like so much of a relationship is choosing to be into it mm-hmm. um, it's compromise yeah it's an active choice we will talk about it in another film mm-hmm. but, uh, oh, but yeah no I just think it's it's so lovely to see uh, this film been embraced the way it has to have such kind of as half as I said to have like a little a little buzz around it it's really nice um, and so what would you give then give it in terms of scores to kind of further fuel that buzz uh, in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect definitely a four in anticipation I think I'd heard so much good stuff but you always kind of want to temper I mean uh, you know we're at a film festival right now but you always want to kind of temper your expectations when people rave about stuff at a film festival it's just in case it lets you down um Enjoyment, yep, for uh, made me cry. We've been saying that a lot today, I think, on this podcast. Um, and then in retrospect, yeah, four. I would, I, I'm excited to watch it again. I think it's very beautiful. Can't wait to see what Celine does next, what Greta does next, what Tomagera does next. <laughs> yeah, not not to be a copycat, but I entirely echo those sentiments. That's exactly how I felt about it too. Are the scores that I'd give. Uh, Hapa, what about you? I think my anticipation was a three because, as I said, I'm like, all of these people are in the cold where Sundance happens. Everything seems to be a bit of a nuisance. I think if I watched anything that was even mildly entertaining, I would have been like, this is the best thing I have ever seen in my entire life. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> They call it mountain fever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Having fever. been there twice, I can say that that is definitely the vibe. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I was like okay, this sounds okay, and I would definitely check it out, but I wasn't that excited about it, so there was a three. And then I am a 4-4 four, four as well. I think it's a film that not only I've been thinking about it more and more, and I will definitely revisit it in the future, but it's also so fun at the time and beautiful and moving in ways that aren't too over-complex when you have that first watch. You can still follow that story in a way that is greatly entertaining. It's very good. So yeah, 3-4-4. Four, four. Well, uh, well. next up, we're going to do a little kind of almost like a speed round where we're going to go through some of like the most interesting, some for different reasons title that we've got to see on the Lido this year. It's a mini Venice special. So, Hafa, let's start off on a low note. <laughs> I did not expect an 80-minute Harmony Corinne film to be not only a film where so many people walked out, but it seemed like everyone but me who remained was unconscious. Mm. Could you explain why Agrodiff was so boring? (laughs) I I will say, I don't want to get cancelled for saying this, but I'm going to be very upfront. The first scene in that film was so loud, I reached for my bag and I got my beautiful earplugs and I feel like I had a much more comfortable experience than everyone who was in that room because I could still hear it very well because it was very loud, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but I have not acquired any levels of deafness and no tinnitus for me and it was fine, but it was so loud and bright and for those who don't know what the film is, it is entirely shot in infrared, which means that you're seeing these bright shades of orange and yellow and blue and at first you're just dizzy and disoriented and then you just become increasingly more dizzy and disoriented and then as the story keeps on going it is, <laughs> it is a juice of misogyny and hyperbole that is like nothing else from people's butt fat showing up on infrared to the most disgusting greasy hair I've ever seen in my life to a lot of the B word being said in several different times um, so it is an experience I will not take it away from him and he has gone out there he has tried he's shown up to Venice with his fancy little masks bless his heart but um, it is not for me so thank you oh my god like I'm just so kind of obsessed with the the wife who does nothing but gently twerk throughout the entire film by saying I miss you honey come home daddy I love you so much while she's ch- like sadly twerking. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not a film with a ton of defenders, but uh, the you ones were... that are defending it are very like they want you to know that they lo- they really liked it. Um, yeah, no, it didn't didn't do anything for me either. Yeah. Um, the only reason I'm not saying more is because my reviews on the website, if anyone would care to find out just how bad it is. But I mean, my thing is like 
I do talk about this in the review, but I just like Harmony Cream's whole thing with this film and with his Edgelord project is that he's like, oh, I want to make movies more like video games. And I'm like, okay, how? Why? What video games specifically? I need examples. And he was asked this at the press conference and he didn't have any because he is just talking out of his ass. He's a performative <laughs> kind of director. He likes the attention. Yeah. He likes the attention, yeah. And we're giving it him by talking about his movies. So. Wow. It's okay. He's one. Yeah, no, it was absolutely terrible. And I say this as someone that's actually been pretty... I've defended a lot of his past work. I love Spring Breakers. I've defended a lot of his past work. Yeah, look at us looking like idiots now. (laughs) I was always correct. I want this podcast to note. (laughs) Um, But from low lows to high highs, like, and I've never really seen a consensus like this in terms of everybody loves poor things. Yeah, yes. Um, I don't think I've met anyone who didn't like it. I've met people that were like, not quite as enamoured as everyone else but they still really liked it so um, just really nice isn't it when you're excited for a film and it lives up to expectations it doesn't happen that often I feel like in our line of work <laughs> um, this is the latest from Yorgos Lanthimos of course it's uh, adapted from Alistair Gray's iconic cult novel from 1992 and it's about a kind of alternate version of Victorian England where a young lady commits suicide um, or dies by suicide and her baby's brain is transplanted into her body. I've been getting this mixed up for weeks. Well, it depends which um, how you're referring to it. So. <laughs> <laughs> her brain is transplanted into the bin and her baby's brain is put into her body. Um, yeah, it sounds a bit... I mean, it sounds insane, let's be real, but it's your gospel, Hadith Moss. And um, it's his... Oh, gosh. I think in order, it's his second collaboration with Emma Stone. But technically now they've done so much I think they've, they've just revealed they've shot another film as well yeah so there's now, an anthology coming out well there's that's Amp, but shot. there's also another one. Oh, yeah, oh, oh, two more in the can that's I great they, no there's three more because they also have what? the short film yeah. that he only screened Please. in Greece when, yeah. did he, when did they have time I know, I know. <laughs> so our most productive um, actor and director combo in quite some time I think and I think that she's giving to him what Laura Dern gives mm-hmm. to uh, David Lynch in terms of like full-body commitment to weird ideas and um, you love to see it you know I, I, she's great in the film she's absolutely marvellous and I think Mark Ruffalo is just as amazing as well I'm a big fan of him anyway but it's the first time he's had like a real balls to the wall comedy mm-hmm. and um, he's just really great in it and I'm sure we're going to be talking so much more about it in the coming months because it's, it's playing London Film Festival it's going to be out in January so there's plenty of time but y- yeah you want to get uh, sights on this one as soon as you can very good. I think not only the best film of the festival, but also the best Lanthimos, which I suppose actually Ooh. that's probably a smaller hmm. claim, the second one, because there were more <laughs> films at the festival, but never mind. Uh, Hafa, were you just as enamoured by Poor Things? Ah, oh, yes. I want to take a moment, all of us, including you listening, to be thankful that there are directors out there who are so out of their little houses to try something new and to play with the form of cinema in a way that is not only so well realized and so detailed and full of love and verb and exciting for the project but also really really great and intertext and the metatextual and the hyperbole of the metaphors and everything just works so well and I feel like we've been saying that festival fever is a plague but if you ask us a year from now I think the excitement will still be there um, until poor things came along on maybe day four of Venice this year maybe correct me but I think it was day four we had not seen anything that was truly exciting I think I loved El Conde and I've said it before but I was very prone to loving El Conde from the beginning yeah um, it was actually day three of the festival ah was it I think yeah. we're just losing track of time well it's just like it feels like we saw it ages ago yeah (laughs) yeah but it was just I, I remember leaving the cinema and saying I don't think I have ever seen such consensus and excitement for a film before. I think Emma Stone is at the very best of her career. She is a force within that film of just brilliant comedic timing and just a pitch perfect dramatic command of what she's doing and I think this is finally the film that has been the culmination of her career in terms of evolution in what she has done and Yorgos Lantimos is so aware of her potentials in both um, abilities and Will and Dafoe is so 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 good people mm. are going to be talking about Mark Ruffalo because Will and Dafoe is good in everything I think Yeah, but he is particularly yeah, he is delicious <laughs> there's this scene 
I'm not going to talk about it, obviously, but there's this dinner scene in which he gives this very brief monologue that made me laugh so much. I could feel my frontal cortex expanding as I laughed. <laughs> like, it was this new sort of, like, it was combining the humor of the dialogue and also his delivery. It's just so good. And yeah. I think I, I could I could praise poor things for another three hours. It's great. Uh, well, we don't have enough time for that. Um, and there is a small child who I think has had a disappointing gelato in the background who uh, is like, this a little tricky. his frisbee is. God bless him and apologies, listener, for this. Um, but yes, uh, but no apologies necessary for the new David Fincher. Hafa, were you impressed by The Killer? You know what? I am going to say this is a good movie. Mm-hmm. And saying it is a good movie, I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, I was expecting much more from The Killer. I'm a big Fincher fan. I think he has done some canonical work. I think his cinema has been has revitalized the idea of the crime film in ways that I don't think have been done since the 60s and the 70s, which might be a big claim, which might be my festival brain, but I do believe it is. <laughs> and I think The Killer is a movie that my dad will love on Netflix two years from now. Um, it's very beautiful to look at. Michael Fassbender is great. The story is very straightforward and is done in a way that is entertaining, but I don't think this is groundbreaking in any way. The thing that I will say is that I think this film answered the question that I see doing the rounds every once in a while, which is, has technology killed the crime thriller? Mm-hmm. Has it killed the, the mystery thriller? And with that film, I think David Fincher is saying, no, he hasn't. I think knowing how to incorporate that into your thriller and to understand the potential of technology is a very interesting thing. And you can still create suspense and mystery and tension. So I think that's my biggest kudos for this film. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that did kind of have you accidentally kind of quoting Harry Styles from last year's festival of like, it's a movie. It is a movie. <laughs> it is a movie that, that is a movie. Like a movie. And it feels like a movie. And that, yeah, and that was no bad things. I had an absolute, like, wonderful time with this. I just had so much fun. Hannah, you're a big Fincher fan. I believe yeah. you got a Fincher tattoo to uh-huh. add to the ones that we all got this year. Um, <laughs> where does this kind of rank for you in terms of, like, Fincher's? I mean, I think, I don't think Fincher's ever made a bad film. He's definitely no. made films I like less, but I don't think any of them are out, like, bad. Not even Alien 3. Um, the first half, at least. <laughs> um, I was excited for the kill. I was hoping it would be a kind of return to the Fincher that I love best, which is the Fincher of Gone Girl and Zodiac. And I don't think it's quite on that level, but to be honest, you know, what, what could be really, those films are pretty much as close to perfect as the film can be to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a lot of fun with it. I really want to read the graphic novel now, because graphic novel is much longer as well, obviously it's longer than a film. But... Um, I do think it's maybe a little bit bare bones because it's, it's just like a revenge story, really, and I think we get quite a lot of those. The plot isn't any more complex than, like, a taken, or, you know? Technically no more complex than Agro Drift. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, not really. But um, obviously the execution is so much better than that, but Agro Drift. But, um, yeah, and I also will say, like, so the soundtrack, I was promised a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score, and I got just like every Smith song ever. Yeah, like just yeah. keep playing the Smiths in it. And like the first time it happened, I was like, haha, that's funny. Like the hitman listens to um, the Smiths whilst he's working. And then after the 10th one, I was like, oh my God, okay, they're hearing the Smiths song, I'm going to kill myself. Oh, well, I mean, that is kind of the vibe that the Smiths is trying to give you, to be fair. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, that was one of those things where it's just like, I loved it. And then I thought, like, this is weird. And then it just like circled back. Oh, it circled back. Never <laughs> This has somehow like, become the funniest thing I've ever seen. Oh, um, but yeah, you know, it's venture at the end of the day. I will watch it again when it comes out on Netflix. Oh, I would love to talk to him about the genre because it is clearly something that he has a lot of affection for. Um, he made this lovely comment, and I think it was a variety profile, not the comment about the strikes. We do not support his comments about the strikes. No. Um, Shh, which venture. were. <laughs> basically a very nearly mild I can see it from both sides but uh, no um, he made this very funny comment about oh I want everyone to watch it and then be suspicious of what the person next to them at Home Depot is doing and I was like that is literally what Zodiac is about Um, you have a scene in the film where that is exactly what Jake Gyllenhaal does (laughs) Um, so yeah I I, I liked it um, with caveats I would say I did give it quite I would say my review is is, is pretty positive and I, I stand by that but I do think if you you need to kind of temper your expectations with it. If you like a thriller, if you like Finchie, you think you're fine. Yeah. If you go in expecting something on the level of 
girl with a dragon tattoo, mm. or Congo, or Zodiac, then you probably setting yourself up for disappointment. I think, yeah, it's one of those ones where, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big fan, but it's not necessarily that I love it, but I come to it. It's going to be very easy to recommend when people mm. oh, are absolutely. asking me what, you know, the mm. thing is that they should watch. If I tell my mom to watch that, she'll love it. Yeah. As, as I have to say, it's like, dad's in it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Next one is one that I think will alienate most people that we recommend it to, but we all loved The Beast. Hannah, do you want to kick off what where, where this do we weird begin? and wonderful film was? Where do we begin? Beast, 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 yeah. beast, beast. Le bet, le bet, le bet. Um... Yeah, so this was one that we were all, I think, quite excited for. Um, it's billed as like this kind of sci-fi film by F- Francis uh, Bertrand Benello, who's a bit of a kind of maverick director, does kind of... You never really predict what he's going to do next, I think. He's quite genre-hopping, and he acts sometimes in things. He popped up in Titan very briefly. He just seems like a really cool guy. Um, and this is his sort of English language debut, but like it's mostly in French, so mm-hmm. not really. Um, it's only a few lines in English, but it's with Leia Stu, who's marvellous in everything she does, and George Mackay, who is less marvellous in everything he does, but generally quite solid as an actor. Um, sorry, George. Um, and it's the story of this couple who kind of just keep finding each other across different lives. We talked about past lives earlier, mm. now talking about. A very similar thing, only um, more literal, and um, it's kind of like yeah, they, they find themselves drawn to each other across three different time frames: one yeah. in the belly part, one in twenty fourteen, and one in twenty forty four. And it's imagining this. Um, I, I believe Benello is saying it's his kind of thing of imagining what happened, the consequences of suppressing feelings expressing feelings it is yeah it's a very kind of fantastical highly entertaining for the most part take on yeah take on love I've not seen him do like a proper love story before so that was, that was quite novel I thought yeah, I have never felt more alienated from my wider Venice Film Festival community than during this film because I was loving it and genuinely near the number of walkouts that Agro Drift got. And like some of them like 15 minutes to the end at points where like I was like, I can barely breathe. This is so tense. I mean, like I didn't see any walkouts where I was sad. It walked. It was a lot of walkouts. Mm. Maybe you were deeply engrossed. I was quite near the front. Yeah, <laughs> everyone behind me's gone. I'm just there, like, yeah. great. <laughs> but happy, you were equally impressed. I think you told me this was like your number two. I mean, everyone's number one is poor things, but after oh that. yeah. So with Lara Ian and Bonello, those were my two most anticipated films because they are two of my favorite filmmakers that are cu- who are currently working. I love Bonello. I have been a massive fan of Bonello for like a decade now. I think he's just a maverick of a director, as Hannah was saying. He's someone who's unafraid to try his hand at the weird and the classical and the funny and the dramatic. And he's just completely detached from the notion of creative continuity in his filmography, which I think is really exciting. The film that he released last year, Coma, which got done dirty by distributors everywhere, I <laughs> uh, just want to say, was at the Berlin Alley, was one of my top three favorite films of the year. And I still stand by the fact that I think it is the best pandemic movie to be made. It is a collage of anxiety and despair that is wrapped and packaged as a love letter to his daughter, to his teenage daughter, as he walks to her through a world that he finds very daunting. And I think he continues this idea with the beast, which, in my opinion, is a very interesting um, walk through his body of work, from the Belle Epoque of House of Tolerance to this very... Um, to this angst and anxiety of the modern times that he comes in in 2014, the, in the third part of this film. Uh, I... I was very into it. As, as Hannah said, I think the first, the first hour of this film is very slow. And I have come to believe it is a way of Bonello trying to test your patience and your limits and, and playing with this a little bit. And I respect him for it. What can I say? But when it comes to the end, I think it is so illuminating and deading and bold. And I think there, there are very few filmmakers playing with this in this sense and I would hate to think that people got bored so deeply by that first hour that they gave up on what the film then packages well that could kind of make sense to me if people like didn't have enough patience to give it space people were leaving right up the end I'm I'm still I'm still furious yeah yeah. but as well as being furious there was a uh, a tinge of sadness because uh you love Friedkin and his kind of 
final film. He only died a few weeks ago, uh, premiered here, The Cane Mutiny Court Martial. Well, first of all, this is a tongue twister of a film. I have been calling The Cane, Cane, Cane. Mm-hmm. But I love Friedkin. I have been quite an enthusiast of his work, and I was devastated when he died in ways that I can't quite grasp just yet. I have been emailing every single publicist who's ever lived to get near Friedkin, which proved quite um, a futile task in many ways. But his final film is not what I expected it to be. I felt it was slightly underwhelming. I have known people who have enjoyed it more than I did. It is basically a courtroom drama, an overextended courtroom drama of an adaptation of a classic book. And it follows the trial of a, a man who's accused, a Navy soldier who's accused of starting a mutiny in a ship. I felt, as I said, underwhelmed by it, but towards the end, as the conclusion of this film unwraps, which I won't tell you because it is a mystery at its heart, I felt very emotional because there's such a parallel between this idea of devaluing something or someone for so long and not noticing the importance that he held until the moment that it's lost. Yeah. That I felt it was such a bitter and poignant parallel to the loss of a filmmaker who was revolutionary and then spent many years being undervalued by so many people and who has not had the chance to to really build the crescendo of a career that I think he, had, he deserved in many ways. And I, I do hope that this film gets seen broadly and that his work is discussed broadly mm. even though it's in the light of really sad news but yeah and I think Kiefer Sutherland I just want to say is fantastic Jack Bauer Woo-hoo. the one and only that guy's funny as hell even though his character has the funniest name ever given to a Navy general which is Quig <laughs> every time this happened every time someone says the name Quig I could not take this seriously but he's great yeah yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's kind of a strange thing coming here because there's like, it felt a little bit like maybe the Friedkin was here because it was the 50th anniversary of The mm. Exorcist and maybe that wasn't, its kind of inclusion wasn't necessarily a indicator of its like quality as a film. But do you, did you kind of find merit to it beyond like that well, it was just a Friedkin? It's his first film since Killer Joe. So, you know, like I was actually kind of surprised it wasn't in competition because, you know, that feels like a big deal. I, I did really like it actually as it happens. I'm a bit of a sucker for like a procedural though. I actually saw there was an article today in Vulture saying um, we should bring back the procedural thriller. Mm. And I was like, Friedkin tried. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, I actually, despite the fact I can't spell the word Marshall to save my life, I I um, was really taken with this. I think like it's just a very entertaining film if you like films where men just kind of have conversations. There's a very good exchange about um, cheese, which involves someone saying the line, he's living the cheese business all over again, which is just so, such a funny line for anyone to say. Lance Riddick saying, I wasn't made aware of this cheese thing before time. Like, just anything Lance Riddick says in this film and, you know, freaking absolutely seismic loss but Lance Riddick as well just like it, it, yeah. it's so sad watching the film and thinking like, he had so many great performances left in him that we'll, um, we'll never get to see the film is dedicated to him as well um, which is very sweet I thought and he's you know playing this like very like you know, if anyone's seen Brooklyn Nine-Nine it's the kind of Captain Holt role it's very like buttoned up very serious like straight face and he just does it with such kind of um you know gusto and there's a wonderful cut in the film to him like a reaction shot cut which I just so funny and that's the thing about the film it's like it's you know it's it's kind of a serious thing they're talking about mutiny but there's all these like little comedic flourishes and William Freakin you know he's, he's associated with this kind of real darkness that's in all his films but he was so funny as a filmmaker as well and he wasn't afraid to kind of bring you to the edge and then pull you right back and um yeah it just made me kind of sad that he's gone now and we're not going to get any more from him. But I think it's a it's a fitting way for him to go out. And Haffer had kind of beautifully summarised it. But I also think that ending is kind of like maybe him, you know, ushering in the new generation, but just kind of wanting a little bit of like respect at the same time. Because when you're watching the film, you're like, I think you do kind of sit there thinking, well, I don't know whose side I'm on here. And then for Jason Clark's character at the end of that, this whole like rant about how everyone should respect their elders, you're kind of like, well, 
is he now the old guy shouting at the clouds? Like, <laughs> I we, think, all, yeah. we all eventually become the old guy shouting at the we clouds. We do. And there's this lovely bit, um, the, the lovely quote that was at the beginning of the film, which the festival kind of put on as a tribute to him, um, something Freakin said about his own work. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like, uh, all of the stories I have chosen to tell during my career were about the thin line between good and evil, the thin line that exists in all of us. And this is what, yeah, this is what that film is about. It's about you know, kind of um, right and wrong, and all and arguing right and wrong in a court of law. And I just, yeah, I think it's a really interesting addition to his filmography, and I'm very glad I got to see it in a room full of people. I think generally appreciated it. Yes, uh, a far better selection than uh, perhaps either stayed for agrodrift or left for the beast well i mean from someone who's coming into a filmmaker that they absolutely love to someone who's coming into a filmmaker that they are a famed hater for uh (laughs) hannah what did you think of hitman yeah so everyone i mean we may have even mentioned it on this podcast before i'm not really a big fan of the rich link later um i think i'm correct in such an opinion i like his comedies and everyone's been like oh well, 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 Hannah likes a link later. And I'm like, I like School of Rock. I like Everybody Wants Some. I like Days of Monkeys. You like Everybody that. Wants Some? Yes. Oh, that didn't. Okay. Fair enough. San- sanity <laughs> prevailed. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I was kind of, you know, tempered expectations going into this one. But I'm a big fan of Glenn Powell, who is the mm-hmm. co-writer and the star of this film and a very good friend of Richard Linklater's. So, yeah, it was, you know, kind of not sure what to think. Not sure if it's really good. It's out of comp as well. That can kind of go either way at a film festival. It's either the best thing you're going to see on festival or the worst thing you're going to see on festival. But I was so, so pleasantly surprised with this film. I think it's just a delight. Mm. The laughter in that screening. I think it probably got the biggest round of applause in a film I saw here, but then I didn't watch Poor Things, so I can't quite compare. But um, You did. I did watch it, just not here. I didn't watch it at the festival, sorry. I, I didn't just talk at length about the film. <laughs> no, I've not actually seen it. I have seen Poor Things, just didn't see it in Venice. Um, but yeah, no, I, I, unendingly delightful film. Just so sharp and funny and well-observed and... Um, for the listeners who may not have heard about what this is about, it's about a man called Gary Marshall, who was a real man, and he is this mild-mannered, awkward college psychology professor at the University of New Orleans, and he, as academia doesn't pay like it used to, he has a side gig working on wiretapping and entrapment for the police department. So he's the guy in the van, the pizza van around the corner, making sure that they get the intel, and he just happens to work on contract killings so it's people that are trying to kill their spouse or their enemy you know whatever so one day he goes into work and he's asked to kind of fill in and be the undercover officer uh, posing as a hitman and he discovers he's got a real knack for it and then things kind of escalate from there shall we say um yeah i mean it's just like it feels so rare we get a comedy that is like original and well constructed and has actual jokes and has charisma and that this just had it in spades for me I, yeah i was so thrilled to be pleasantly surprised and i think glenn powell is just absolutely magnificent yeah it's wonderful it's playing london film festival as well so definitely get a ticket it's, yeah it's really really good you heard it here folks another great film from richard linklater and his incredible <laughs> filmography david jenkins will be very happy uh, Hapa, what about you any thoughts on the hitman aside from it was really funny and charming i mean i'm on the other spectrum of the richard linklaterness of it all you like his like um, I love his emotional films. I love um, the Before Trilogy. Boyhood's one of my favorite films of all time. Yeah. I'm sorry to be that Tumblr person, but I love that film with all of my heart. I think he is one of the great contemporary American filmmakers to understand emotion and teenagehood in ways that I think it's sometimes underappreciated, but I respect it. So when I see that he's doing a comedy. I am always, I love School of Rock, but I'm like, can you please get back to the films that I love in a way? Uh, and I feel kind of like, oh, fine, I'll go in. And I bit my tongue. I love that. I, I like Glenn Powell. And now I love Glenn Powell. I think he is truly the messiah of American rom-coms. He has saved it. He has risen. He's sexy as hell. That man is a snack. 
Um, and the delivery of his lines and his whole physicality and he gets to wear different costumes in this film which means that he gets to play different characters with snippets of these personalities that he has created and I think for an actor to prove themselves to be a comedic actor is a big one but to do it in such a stylistic and, and plural kind of way is another one is to still be sexy and mm. and be sexy charismatic. and funny and a little bit dorky a thousand percent I think it's and very hard ins- to do yeah and what an inspiring message for us all that if you're not sexy you maybe you can just choose sexy. to be yeah, <laughs> not being sexy yeah. is a skill problem that you, <laughs> it is a skill issue that you can definitely improve so I, I was so heartwarmed to see such a thunderous reaction to the film in Venice I think Richard Linklater is underappreciated <laughs> yeah but he can be underappreciated he can be the guy who is everyone's like oh great but no one's oh great yeah. for quite some time not, and not since boyhood I think not and since I boyhood like yeah boyhood, I know yeah. that film means a lot to lot for the past few years um, it, it just even Apollo ten and a half, ten and a half Again, I liked it movie. I liked it but I didn't love it but I love Hitman. I think everyone who can watch in some way, I don't know what distribution looks like for this film yet, but I hope you get to watch it in a cinema with other people who are going to be going down this roller coaster with you because it is a hoot. It is indeed. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there were so many other exciting films and I think a lot of them are going to be coming up on future episodes. Uh, we just kind of didn't have enough time to pack every single thing in, but like lots of other just, like, really cool... like hot shots of like quick wrecks, <laughs> things that we think people should check out when they arrive. Honestly, I can't remember anything's name. I've now forgotten every single film I've ever seen. Sky Peels. Sky Peels, wonderful. Um, I saw a film today called Io Capitano, which I think it was like a full five-star, absolutely beautifully brilliant film. Yeah, I cannot recommend that one enough. But yeah, plenty of others. What about you? Sky Peels would be my kind of smaller recommendation. There's this film called Housekeeping for Beginners, which I didn't love, but I think is interesting enough to warrant a watch. Mm. It's by this Macedonian filmmaker called Goran Stovleski, who directed this film You Won't Be Alone last year with Numi Rapace, which I think a lot of people liked. And uh, this one's about this sort of um, this queer man and woman in Macedonia who kind of have this safe house for this group of motley crew of kind of queer people that live with them and it's, it's very sweet and it doesn't totally work but I think when it does work it's, it's really delightful so that would be a kind of small recommendation I've heard like a lot of good things about other kind of titles I'm kind of keen to check out if they do the festival circuit but I mean the problem is festival like Venice things only t- tend to screen in kind of rigid set times it's quite yeah. hard to like put in more than three films a day because the way the schedule works but um I was mainly on the comp beat this year. And I do think, like, I've not seen anything I've visibly hated apart from Agro Drift. Yeah. So that's, like, quite a good... And that's good that that happened to us early on. So yeah. then it was like an upward trajectory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got that one out of the way quite early. <laughs> So, thank you very much for listening and being being patient for the fact that we are live on the ground and all of the kind of interesting audio stuff happening in the background um, because of it. But, you know, we wanted to kind of bring you with us to, like, this wonderful experience of being at a festival. Next week, we'll be having a look at Fromont, Rotting in the Sun, and for Film Club, it'll be Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Treat the Movies hosted by me, Leila Latif. My guests this week were Hannah Strong and Hafez Alice Ross. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 